0: Section 43 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in April 2014. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. Great Navigators of the Eighteenth Century by Jules Verne second part chapter three asia and its inhabitants b after a few moments of private conversation with the ambassador the emperor presented gifts to him and to the minister plenipotentiary they were then conducted to cushions in front of which were tables covered with a number of vessels containing meat and fruits the emperor also partook of these and continued to overwhelm the ambassadors with expressions of regard and esteem which had a great effect in raising the english in the estimation of the chinese public macartney and his suit were later invited to visit the gardens of se during their walk in the grounds, the English met the emperor, who stopped to receive their respectful salutations, and order his first minister, who was looked upon as little less than a vice-emperor, and several other grandees, to accompany them. The Chinese conducted the English over a portion of the grounds laid out as pleasure-gardens, which formed only a small portion of the vast enclosure the rest is sacred to the use of the women of the imperial family and was as rigorously closed to the chinese ministers as to the english embassy macartney was then led through a fertile valley in which there were many trees chiefly willows of enormous size grass grows abundantly between the trees and its luxuriance is not diminished by cattle or interfered with by mowing Arriving upon the shores of an irregular lake of vast extent, the whole party embarked in yachts and proceeded to a bridge which is thrown across the narrowest part of the lake, and beyond which it appeared to stretch away indefinitely. Upon the 17th of September, McCartney and his suit were presented at a ceremony which took place upon the anniversary of the Emperor's birthday upon the morrow and following days splendid fets succeeded each other chien lung participating in them with great zest dancers on the tight rope tumblers conjurers of unrivaled skill and wrestlers performed in succession the natives of various portions of the empire appeared in their distinctive costumes and exhibited the different productions of their provinces Music and dancing were succeeded by fireworks which were very effective although they were let off in daylight the narrative says quote, several of the designs were novel to the english one of them i will describe a large box was raised to a great height and the bottom being removed as if by accident an immense number of paper lamps fell from it when they left the box they were all neatly folded but in falling they opened by degrees and sprung one out of the other. Each then assumed a regular form, and suddenly a beautifully colored light appeared. The Chinese seemed to understand the art of shaping the fireworks at their fancy. On either side of the large boxes were smaller ones, which opened in a similar manner, letting fall burning torches of different shapes, as brilliant as burnished copper, and flashing like lightning at each movement of the wind. The display ended with the eruption of an artificial volcano. End quote. It is the usual custom for the Emperor of China to conclude his birthday festivities by hunting in the forests of Tartary, but in the present case advancing age rendered that diversion unwise, and his majesty decided to return to Pekin, the English embassy being invited to precede him thither macartney however felt that it was time to terminate his mission in the first place it was not customary for ambassadors to reside long at the chinese court and in the second the fact that the chinese emperor defrayed the expenses of the embassy naturally induced him to curtail his stay in a short time, he received from Chien Lung the reply to the letter of the King of England and the presents intended for the English monarch as well as a number for the members of his suit. This Macartney rightly interpreted as his congé. The English went back to Tong Fu by way of the Imperial Canal. Upon this trip, they saw the famous bird Le Tse fishing for his master. It is a species of cormorant and is so well trained that it is unnecessary to place either a cord or ring around its neck to prevent it from swallowing any of its prey. Upon every boat or raft there are ten or twelve of these birds, ready to plunge the instant they receive a sign from their masters. It is curious to see them catch enormous fish and carry them in their beaks. McCartney mentions a singular manner of catching wild ducks and other water-birds. Empty jars and calabashes are allowed to float upon the water for several days, until the birds are accustomed to the sight of them. A man then enters the water, places one of the jars upon his head, and, advancing gently, seizes the feet of any bird which allows him to come near enough— he rapidly immerses it in the water to choke it, and then noiselessly continues his search until his bag is full. The embassy visited Canton and Macao, and thence returned to England. We need not dwell upon the return voyage. We must now consider that portion of Asia which may be called the interior. The first traveller to be noticed is Volney everyone knows, by repute at least, his book on ruins, but his account of his adventures in Egypt and Syria far surpasses it. There is nothing exaggerated in the latter. It is written in a quiet, precise manner, and is one of the most instructive of books. The members of the Egyptian expedition refer to it as containing exact statements as to climate, the productions of the soil, and the manners of the inhabitants." Volney prepared himself most carefully for the journey, which was a great undertaking for him. He determined to leave nothing to chance, and upon reaching Syria he realized that he could not possibly acquire the knowledge of the country he desired, unless he first made himself acquainted with the language of the people. He therefore retired to the monastery of Mar-Hand in Libya, and devoted himself to the study of Arabic. Later on, in order to learn something of the life led by the wandering tribes of the Arabian desert, he joined company with a sheikh, and accustomed himself to the use of a lance and to live on horseback, thus qualifying himself to accompany the tribes in their excursions. Under their protection he visited the ruins of Palmyra and Baalbek, cities of the dead, known to us only by name. His style of writing says la Beuve, is free from exaggeration and marked by singular exactness and propriety when for example he wishes to illustrate the quality of the egyptian soil and in what respect it differs from that of africa he speaks of this black light greasy earth which is brought up and deposited by the nile when he wishes to describe the warm winds of the desert with their dry heat he compares them to the impression which one receives upon opening a fierce oven to take out the bread according to his description speaking of the fitful winds he says they are not merely laden with fog but gritty and powdery and in reality full of fine dust which penetrates everything and of the sun he says it presents to view but an obscured disk if such an expression may be used in speaking of a rigid statement of facts, Volney attained to true beauty of expression, to an actual physical beauty, so to speak, recalling the touch of Hippocrates in his De Aere, Aquis, et Lotis. Although no geographical discoveries can be imputed to him, we must nonetheless recognize in him one of the first travelers who had a true conception of the importance of their task his aim was always to give a true impression of the places he visited and this in itself was no small merit at a time when other explorers did not hesitate to enliven their narratives with imaginary details with no recognition whatever of their true responsibility the Abbe barthelemy who in seventeen eighty eight was to publish his voyage du jeune anacharsis was already exercising a good deal of influence on public taste by his popularity in society and position as a man of science and drawing special attention to greece and the neighboring countries it was evidently whilst attending his lessons that De choiseul imbibed his love for history and archaeology Nominated ambassador at Constantinople, de Choiseul determined to profit, by the leisure he enjoyed, in travelling as an artist and archaeologist through the Greece of Homer and Herodotus. Such a journey was the very thing to complete the education of the young ambassador, who was only twenty-four years of age, and, if he knew himself, could not be said to have any acquaintance with the way of the world sensible of his shortcomings he surrounded himself with learned and scientific men amongst them the Abbe barthélemy the greek scholar hans de villoison the Poet de lille the sculptor fauvel and the Peta cassas in fact in his picturesque history of greece he himself merely plays the role of mercenus M. de Choiseul-Gouffier engaged as private secretary a professor, the abbé Jean-Baptiste Le Chevalier, who spoke Greek fluently. The latter, after a journey to London, where M. de Choiseul's business detained him long enough for him to learn English, went to Italy, and was detained at Venice by severe illness for seven months. After this, he joined M. de Choiseul-Gouffier at Constantinople the chevalier occupied himself principally with the site of troy well versed in the iliad he sought for and believed he identified the various localities mentioned in the homeric poem his able geographical and historical book at once provoked plentiful criticism Upon the one side, learned men, such as Bryant, declared the discoveries made by Choiseul to be illusory, for the reason that Troy, and, as a matter of course, the Ten Years' Siege, existed only in the imagination of the Greek poet, whilst others, and principally the English portion of his critics, adopted his conclusions. The whole question was almost forgotten when the discoveries made quite recently by Schliemann reopened the discussion guillaume antoine olivier who traversed the greater portion of the western hemisphere at the end of the last century had a strange career employed by berthier de sauvigny to translate a statistical paper on paris he lost his patron and the payment for his labors in the first outburst of the revolution wishing to employ his talent for natural history away from paris he was nominated by the minister roland to a mission to the distant and little-known portions of the ottoman empire a naturalist named Bruguer was associated with him the two friends left paris at the end of seventeen ninety two and were delayed for four months at versailles until a suitable ship was found for them they only reached Constantinople at the end of the following May, carrying letters relating to their mission to Monsieur de Simonville. But this ambassador had been recalled, and his successor, Monsieur de Sainte-Croix, had heard nothing of their undertaking. What was the best thing to do whilst awaiting the reply to the inquiries sent to Paris by Monsieur de Sainte-Croix? The two friends could not remain inactive they therefore decided to visit the shores of asia minor and some islands in the egyptian archipelago the french minister had excellent reasons for not supplying them with much money and their own resources being limited they were unable to do more than make a flying visit to these interesting countries Upon their return to Constantinople they found a new ambassador named Verniac who had received instructions to send them to Persia where they were to endeavor to awaken the sympathy of the government for France and to induce it to declare war against Russia At this time the most deplorable anarchy reigned in Persia usurpers succeeded each other upon the throne to the great detriment of the welfare of the inhabitants War was going on in Khorasan at the time that Olivier and Bruguère arrived. An opportunity occurred for them to join the Shah in a country as yet unvisited by any European, but unfortunately Bruguère was in such bad health that they were not only forced to lose the chance, but were detained for four months in an obscure village buried amongst the mountains. In September 1796 Mehemet returned to Teheran. His first act was to order a hundred Russian sailors, whom he had taken prisoners on the Caspian Sea, to be put to death, and their limbs to be nailed outside his palace walls, a disgusting trophy worthy of the butcher tyrant. The following year Mehmed Ali was assassinated, and his nephew Feta Ali Shah succeeded him after a short struggle. It was difficult for Olivier to discharge his mission with this constant change of reigning sovereigns. He was forced to renew his negotiations with each succeeding prince. Finally, the travellers, realizing the impossibility of obtaining anything definite under such circumstances, returned to Europe, and left the question of alliance between France and Persia to a more favorable season they stopped upon their homeward journey at Baghdad, Ispahan, Aleppo, Cyprus, and Constantinople. Although this journey had been fruitless as regarded diplomacy, and had contributed no new discovery on geography, Cuvier, in his eulogy of Olivier, assures us that, so far as natural history was concerned, much had been achieved this may be the better credited as olivier was elected to the institute as the successor to doventon cuvier in academic style says that the narrative of the voyage published in 3 quarto volumes was warmly received by the public it has been said, he continues, that it might have been of greater interest if the censor had not eliminated certain portions, but allusions were found throughout the whole volume, which were inadmissible, as it does not do to say all we know, especially of Tamas Kulikan. Monsieur Olivier had no greater regard for this assertion than for his fortune. He quietly omitted all that he was told to leave out, and restricted himself to a quiet and simple account of what he had seen." A journey from Persia to Russia is not difficult, and was less so in the eighteenth century than to-day. As a matter of fact, Russia only became a European power in the days of Peter the Great. Until the reign of that monarch she had been in every particular, manners, customs, and inhabitants, Asiatic. With Peter the Great and Catherine the Second, however, commerce revived high roads were made the navy was created and the various tribes became united into one nation the empire was vast from the first and conquest has added to its extent Peter the Great ordered the compilation of charts, sent expeditions round the coast to collect particulars as to the climate, productions, and races of the different provinces of his empire, and at length his entbearing upon the voyage which resulted in the discovery of the straits bearing his name. The example of the great emperor was followed by his successor, Catherine the Second. She attracted learned men to her court, and corresponded with the savants of the whole world. She succeeded in impressing the nations with a favorable idea of her subjects. Interest and curiosity were awakened, and the eyes of Western Europe were fixed upon Russia. It became recognized that a great nation was arising, and many doubts were entertained as to the result upon European interests prussia had already changed the balance of power in europe by her victories under frederick the second russia possessed resources of her own not only in men but in silver and riches of every kind still unknown or untested Thus it came to pass that publications concerning that country possessed an attraction for politicians and those interested in the welfare of their country, as well as for the scientific men, to whom descriptions of manners and customs foreign to their experience were always welcome. No work had hitherto excelled that of the naturalist Pallas, which was translated into French between 1788 and 1793. IT WAS A NARRATIVE OF A JOURNEY ACROSS SEVERAL PROVINCES OF THE RUSSIAN EMPIRE. THE SUCCESS OF THIS PUBLICATION WAS WELL DESERVED. Peter Simon Pallas was a German naturalist who had been summoned to St. Petersburg by Catherine II in 1668, and elected by her a member of the Academy of Sciences. She understood the art of enlisting him in her service by her favours pallas in acknowledgment of them published his account of fossil remains in siberia england and france had just sent expeditions to observe the transit of venus russia not to be behindhand dispatched a party of learned men of whom pallas was one to siberia seven astronomers and geometers five naturalists and a large number of pupils made up the party which was thoroughly to explore the whole of the vast territory for six whole years pallas devoted himself to the successive explorations of orenberg upon the yaik the rendezvous of the nomad tribes who wander upon the shores of the caspian sea guriel which is situated upon the borders of the great lake which is now drying up the ural mountains with their numberless iron mines tobolsk the capital of siberia the province of Kolivan upon the northern slopes of the atlas krasnoyarsk upon the yenisei and the immense lake of bakali and dauria on the frontiers of china he also visited astrakhan the caucasus with its varied and interesting inhabitants and finally he explored the don returning to st petersburg on the thirtieth of july seventeen seventy four it may well be believed that pallas was no ordinary traveller he was not merely a naturalist he was interested in everything that affects humanity geography history politics commerce religion science art all occupied his attention and it is impossible to read his narrative without admiring his enlightened patriotism, or without recognizing the penetration of the sovereign who understood the art of securing his services. When his narrative was once arranged, written, and published, Pallas had no idea of contenting himself with the laurels he had gained. Work was his recreation, and he found occupation in assisting in the compilation of a map of Russia. His natural inclinations led him to the study of botany, and by his works upon that subject he obtained a distinctive place among Russian naturalists. One of his later undertakings was a description of southern Russia, a physical and topographical account of the province of Taurius, a work which, originally published in French, was afterwards translated into English and German. Delighted with this country, which he had visited in 1793 and 1794, he desired to settle there. The empress bestowed some of the crown lands upon him, and he transported his family to Simferopol. Pallas profited by the opportunity to undertake a new journey in the northern provinces of the empire, the steppes of the Volga, and the countries which border the Caspian Sea, as far as the Caucasus he then explored the Crimea. He had seen parts of the country twenty years before, and now he found great changes. Although he complains of the devastation of the forests, he commends the increase of agricultural districts and the centers of industries which had been created. The Crimea is known to be considerably improved since that time. It is impossible to foresee what it may yet become enthusiastic though he was at first in his admiration of this province pallas was exposed to every kind of treachery on the part of the tartars his wife died in the crimea and finally disgusted with the country and its inhabitants he returned to breton to end his days he died there on the eighth of september eighteen eleven he left two important works, from which naturalists, geographers, statesmen, and merchants were able to gather much trustworthy information upon countries then but little known, and the commodities and resources of which were destined to have a large influence over European markets. End of section forty-three.